When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, let's talk about, sir, a subject that is near and dear, I believe, to your heart. And that would be the art of the trade. I looked this up last night, Louie. If I'm not mistaken, you retired as a player and were named North Star's GM all in the same day on February 10th, 1978. Mm-hmm. According to the research I did on Google... It took you all of nine days to make your first trade. How quickly did you know or did you grow comfortable with with uh, talking to GMs, making moves, and ultimately starting to make some pretty big trades through the years? I had uh, no problem doing that. I really, when I look at it, I, you know, I really had no concerns, didn't even think about it. I just felt that I had to make some moves, and I was willing to make those moves. It didn't matter who the guy was that I was dealing with or who the team. It just was something that uh, when I was brought in, I had to do something with the team. We were in last place. We we had some guys that were playing for us that were making a tremendous amount of money and weren't productive, and and I wanted to get the budget in order, and I wanted to get uh, the team in order, so I made a lot of trades. I made a lot of trades in the team. <laughs> I looked it up last night. Yes, you did. You made a lot of trades. Nobody did. No, those 10 years, I probably made more trades than anybody. Now, what was it like when you got the job and, and you knew that the roster was certainly not great and, and saw that the moves had to be made? What were those first few years like when you were actually actively heading, having to make trades of guys who I would imagine some were your friends and some guys you probably knew quite well? Funny you said that because when I took over, like you said, one day I was a player, next day I was a general manager and coach. And so I walked in the locker room and I said, uh, guys, uh, days change and situations change. Yesterday I was your teammate, today I'm your boss. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, you're all friends of mine. And I want you to know that uh, I'm going to make trades and deals that I have to do for the best of the club. And it's got nothing to do with friendship. Now, after I make the deal, if I'm your friend, in your mind, that's uh, that's good. If I'm not, that's your prerogative. But as far as I'm concerned, you'll still be my friend. But it's not going to, in any way, deter me from making a trade. And the first guy I traded, <laughs> I rode to the rink with about oh, for three years every game. So, uh, and uh, and one of the Who next guys I traded, that was Dougie Hicks. Okay. Yep. I found I actually found that trade. Yes, and then uh, a little while later, I I bought a guy like Rombo, who I I'd, I'd been rooming with uh, for the latter part of that year, and uh, and I traded a number of others, but it it was just things that I felt had to be done, and uh, 
or Norway malicious or anything. Mm-hmm. And there were some things that had to be done for the budget as well. Uh, like Rombo's contract was very high. Hogebaum's contract was very high. And I just had to get rid of them uh, and bring the you know the budget into some semblance of good business. Louis, it took you, according to the, the uh, research I did last night, it took you a month to trade Doug Hicks. So the guy that, that you had driven to with the rink for a few years or so, it took you a month to trade him to uh, to uh, Chicago. Who, Chicago. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, you know, it's not that I, I enjoyed making the trades. I hated to see my friends go, but we, you know, we were well in last place, and we, and we didn't have a lot coming, and and we had to we had to we had to do some things to to change it, change it up. Take me through that day, Fe- February tenth. So you, you come? Did you come to the rink as a player? Did, did you had, had you been called the night before? How, how did it unfold that you took the very unusual move of transitioning from player to executive in a matter of hours, basically? Well, February eighth, we were playing in Madison Square Gardens, and that night I was rooming alone. We had an ex- extra guys, so I was the oldest guy on the team. I was almost going to be thirty-seven. I knew I was going to retire at the end of the year. And we got beat 5 nothing in Madison Square Garden. And after the game, I went back to my room, and I got a phone call from Gordy Ritz and Bob McNulty. Gordy was the president. McNulty was one of the owners. And they said, uh, we want to talk to you when you get in to Minneapolis tomorrow. Why don't you come down to Gordy's office? And I said, what about? And he said, well, we're interested in you talking to you. We wanted to see your thoughts. We might make a general manager change. We want to see what you feel and taking the team over for the rest of the year. And I said, well, don't waste your time because I'm not taking any job for two months. Mm-hmm. I said, I've already got some interest in other places. I had Ellen Nicholson had talked to me about joining a player's association. I had another team that had indicated that they're going to want to talk to me about being a general manager. And so I said, I'm not taking a job for two months. What do you want me to do, wave a magic wand and everything changes? No, I said, that's not worth it. He said, well, what would you want? I said, I'd want two years. And he said, okay, come on down to the office and we'll talk to you. So the next day I went to the office. Spent a couple hours with him about what I thought uh, had to be done with the team, changes that had to be made, where we were, where we were coming from. And that was a Thursday, and the 9th, and then 10th was in the morning. And he said, uh, we want to meet you at the Minnesota Club, which is now the Wild offices in St. Paul used to be like the Minneapolis club at 7 o'clock in the morning. So I went there at 7 in the morning. They had the whole ownership group, uh, 11 of them there. And they were quizzing me about the team and my my thoughts, what had to be done, blah, blah, blah. And then they said, well, uh, who are you going to hire uh, to work for you? I said, well, I'm going to get Glenn Sonmore. And one of the owners says, well, you can't get Sonmore. He said, why not? He said, well, he was with the WHA Saints here in 72 for a few years, and they almost put us out of business, so you can't have anybody from WHA. And I said, well, then you better get somebody else. I said, if you're asking me to run a team, and then you're going to tell me who to hire, I can't do it my way. I said, no hard feelings. I said, I'll just go back and finish the season off. So uh, I just wouldn't do that. And they said, okay, wait outside. For a few minutes, so I went outside, and they must have discussed it. They came outside, and they said, "Okay, you can hire Sonmar." Mm-hmm. And uh, so they offered me the job, and so I went over to practice. That was the most unusual thing because I went to practice. We were on the ice at ten o'clock. We were doing a 
we were going to have a press conference at 12 o'clock. Nobody knew it yet. Sure. So I went to practice at 10 o'clock, and I said to the trainer, Doc Rose, I said, I need you to come down and tell the coach you need me off the ice at 10.30. Uh, that uh, Gordy Ritz wants to talk to me or something. He said, I'm not doing that. He said, uh, Doc, I suggest you do that. And he was a very close friend of mine. So he started laughing. He said, I know something's up. Okay, I'll do it. Okay. And you know what the most ironic thing is? Uh, the coach at the time, who I liked, but, you know, I, the coaches the last couple of years, I always felt threatened that I wanted to be a coach. I never wanted a coach. I, I, I hated coaching. I, I took over as general manager coach, and I said when I was getting hired, I said I'll only coach to the end of the year because I, I don't want to be a coach. I'd coached the university for five years. That that showed me I don't want to be a coach. I, I don't like the repetition. I love the action on the bench during the game. I don't like the repetition in practice. So, so it was so ironic because the coach blows the whistle about 10.25, calls everybody in the circle. And he had taken over halfway during the year. And he literally had not asked me one thing during the year. He asked everybody else in the room about doing this, doing that. He never ever said, Louie, what do you think? Uh-huh. And he said, uh, our power play is terrible. We haven't scored in seven games or so. We we got to do something different. Everybody's just standing there. And he looked at me and said, Louie, what do you think? That was the first time. <laughs> he knew something three, was up, huh? Months. Huh? I said he, he must have had an inkling that something no, was up. No, he didn't have any inkling, no. It, okay. was, it was just ironic. And I said, you know, you got to do what you want to do. <laughs> and... Uh, so he said some things. We broke. We started the power play. Five minutes later, I get called off the ice. And yep. hour and a half later, I was announced as general manager and coach. So the the coach at that time was whom? I was Andre Blue. And I liked Andre. Okay. I liked him a lot. But he just, uh, I, I, you know, I just think that for for some reason, maybe because I'd been from Minnesota and been around so long, the coaches always I always figured that I had an ulterior motive. I want to coach. I didn't want to coach. Just leave me alone. Right. I had one coach come to me. I'm not going to say who it was. He came to me, and we were playing in Vancouver, and he came to me late at night, curfew, as if to check on my room and curfew. And I was rooming alone at the time. And he said, why do you want my job? I said, why would I want your job? He said, I know you want to coach this team. I said, how much do you make? 25000 27000 I said, do you think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with $25,000? I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't want your job for, for $50,000. I don't want a coach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and but these guys couldn't get it through their head. So so your, your uh, starting salary as GM of the Stars was what? Well, you know, I, my last contract, my hockey contract, I did in a declining matter. And I, the, it was a five-year deal, and I took more money at the beginning. And less at the end. And I did it that way for two reasons. One, I had what's called a Clifford Trust that nobody had. Phyllis Fazito and I were the only guys that were able to get in the league. Our, our lawyer was a tax lawyer. was very smart. And then when the league figured out what it was about, they wouldn't give any more. But you could defer up to half your money, and the team couldn't get a deduction for 10 years, and you could make the money work for 10 years, and then you take it out over a 10-year period. So you wanted to put more away quick. Plus, I wanted to come out of hockey at a salary that I felt I could go and make in the business world so I wouldn't have any adjustment working. And so my salary came down to 55000 which is still a lot of money in those days. Sure. But I was 55000 And so when they said, 
Okay, we'll give you two years. What do you want? I said, I'll take the same salary I'm making right now for two years, 55000 So that was my first salary as general manager. That's not that's not bad at that time, too. That, that's smart. No, it's pretty good. That's smart. But uh, I left at 250000 10 years later, so it was different. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a marked improvement. Back to trades. Um, how did, for you at least, if there became a pattern to them, Lou, how did the typical trade sort of start to start to unfold? Well, everybody will tell you that was general manager at the time. I initiated everything. I was constantly on the phone all the time, seeing who was available, who they might want to trade, and I do it constantly. I just I was picking the other general managers' brains, see what they're thinking in case there might be something that we might be want to get involved in or acquire if there's something we had that interests them that they might want to do something. And and I was on the phone all day long, every day. Every day. Every, Tory, whenever, bless his soul, Bill died in May, but whenever he was talking to a group, he says, and, and my daily call would be from Louie, give me something. <laughs> what are you going to give me today? <laughs> that was a pretty good good team that, that you were calling, too, with uh, yeah, Tory with but, the Islanders. But we had... Uh, you know, it, you know, it was just I, I constantly wanted to know, even if we weren't making a deal with someone, I wanted to know who might be going where, because sometimes in your mind you want to even sabotage them making a deal if it's going to hurt your team in your division. You know, mm-hmm. so it was, it, it took up a, a lot of my time, a lot of my time. I, I called general managers every day. There wasn't a day went by I didn't call a general manager. So what did what did you learn about the art of the trade too, Lou? I mean, if there was if you were comfortable doing it from day one, what did you learn as time progressed about how they worked, what was smart, what might not have been smart? Well, the first thing I learned is the fact that when you make a deal, don't look back, and and you make a deal for the purpose that you believe is going to make your team better. So it doesn't matter who's going where, if your team ends up playing better than it was before, then the deal is good for you. doesn't matter if the other guy could go and be a superstar. If he's not a superstar for you and he's not producing like that, that has no, nothing to do in the deal. The deal is, did you get better? Right. The second thing is, and Sammy Pollock used to always say this, try and get the best player in the deal. You want the best player in the deal. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, many times, I, I, I used to call them interchangeables. You have maybe five, six, seven guys on a team, and the rest are interchangeables. You have your core, they're really going to make the team become something. Sure. And then you have guys around them, and they, you know, they're they're different, and they add different value, but they're interchangeables, really. They're, they're not the core of your team. And then the other thing is that when you're making a deal, if you really believe in a deal, don't give them time to change your mind. So just do it I, quickly, or quickly, try and do yeah, it quickly. Yeah, yeah. Like in those days, we had what's called a telex, and we used to. I remember you know, telexes. Send the the deals in that way. So yeah. you strike when the iron's hot, and that's it. In fact, Gary Green told me a story once. He was working for Washington. He was coach of Washington Capitals. Max McNabb was coach of Washington. And Max, and usually every time I made a deal at a major, major league level, I, I knew before. I was going to make a deal. I talked to my people in my staff. You know, it's just what they thought about the player I was thinking of t- trading and who I might try and acquire around the league, you know. Mm-hmm. So I got their, their opinion, their thoughts of 
what they thought about the deal and, and uh, if there's something that I might have missed that maybe I should think about. But when you're prepared to make a deal, you go ahead and work at it. But minor league deals, I wasn't afraid to – those deals I might I made, you know, make just on my own judgment. And Max McNabb called me this one day and, and he said, Louie, I got this minor league defenseman, and I knew who it was. Uh, he said, I'm looking for a left winger. You got uh, a couple of left wingers down there in Oklahoma City. Will you, will you make this trade? Uh, I'll give you him for him. I said, okay, you got a deal. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I want you to think, no. I said, you got a deal. It's fine. I'll do it. No, no, no. He said, I'll get back to you. So Gary Green was sitting there, and he told me years after when we were at some function, he said, Louis, I laughed so hard because Max hung up. He wanted to make the deal, and then when you said yes, Young up and says, you got to watch that guy. you got to watch what he's up to, Gary. You can't <laughs> deal him too fast. <laughs> so he called you to make a trade but didn't trust that, that he would actually get the best of the trade. So so did the trade get made? No, it never got made. <laughs> <laughs> How many times, Lou, did, did you have a guy who you might have liked and who was playing well, and you thought to yourself, there's no way that he's going to continue to play this well, so I'm actually going to try and capitalize and trade him while he's playing so well? Well, the best example I can give you, I played with Harvey Bennett. I loved Harvey Bennett as a person, as an individual. And he was a hard-working, gritty guy, and a tough guy. But he wasn't a, a you know, a, a productive guy. And when I took over, he, he might have been, he was in among one of the first trades I made, too. So when I took over, uh, after about two, three weeks, I don't know what it was, we were playing somebody, he got four goals in a game. Mm-hmm. Four goals. That's not a bad night. I went in, and I started working on phones. And I think it was just a couple days, not not too long after, I finally made a trade with Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I traded him. So he said, how can you trade Harvey? I said, I love Harvey, but that was he's never going to be worth more than that. He had four goals. He never scored four goals the rest of his career. <laughs> That's a smart move, then. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Good, you know, trade high, right? And it was it worked out. I mean, I'm sure Philly liked him because he was tough, and maybe they didn't expect him to score as much. But I knew he wasn't going to score as much, and so I made the deal. The best trade that you never made. I never really had a best trade I never made because uh, there were there were some like one of my coaches tried to get me. Uh, to trade Craig Hartsburg for Craig Redmond, who was drafted sixth by the Edmonton Oilers overall. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no way in humanity I'd ever make that deal. Hartsburg was at that time the best player to ever play for the North Stars, and he his career ended short. Or he, this guy would have been an All Star forever. I mean, he was tremendous. Yeah, Hartsey, that that would be, been incredible to trade him. I mean, he's, yeah, he, yeah. he is, I think, t- to this day, one of the best professional defensemen that we've had in the state, right? Well, I... Wild North Stars. Let me put it this way. Team. He was as talented. There's never been a better defenseman here than Craig Hartsburg. As talented. He, he was so good offensively with the puck, defensively smart. He never, you know, his career got cut short because of the yep. hip injury. I mean, we had... Can you imagine the defense we had and we lost them all? We had him and Sargent. Back, right? All-stars. Gary's, Gary's back. Yeah, then bad, we had right? Dan Manage. Yep. We had 
Tom Hirsch we drafted in the first round, and, and he was he was tremendous. He was like six five and really skilled. And David Quinn with blood disease. Yep. All five went within two years. Mm. Our whole defense. Mm. Yeah, Hirsch had the uh, shoulders, right? Yeah. Bad shoulders. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in in your mind, among all these trades, and I'm holding from Trade Tracker, Louie, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least eight pages of trades that you made. Is there one that stands out as the trade that you were proudest of or considered the best trade? Well, there there are a few. One was we needed a power forward, and uh, we we targeted Bellows. And, you know, Brian went up to score 475 goals in the league. But, you know, we knew he'd be going top of the draft one or two easily, and and we are too good a team. But I knew Detroit wasn't very good. And uh, they had Jim Skinner as general manager. So I went to Skinner, and I tried to get his first-round pick. Mm-hmm. And I had offered him Greg Smith, you know, for his first round plus somebody else. And he said, no, he needed a right winger. And I, I started asking him who he liked as right wingers around the league. Well, he kind of liked Donnie Murdoch, who was playing in Edmonton. So I called Glenn Sather, and I gave him Don Jackson. They needed a big, tough defenseman, and Jackson played really well for him. And, and we had, as I said, a real deep defense at the time. So we traded Donnie Jackson for Donnie Murdoch, took Donnie Murdoch and Greg Smith and traded him to Detroit and got Detroit's first-round pick, and that became Brian Bellows. And, and then you also made a subsequent trade right before that draft with Boston to, to make sure that they didn't take Brian, correct? Yeah. Now, you know, my thought, like I told you, there's interchangeables and there's keys. Yep. Now, they, there was two players at the top of the draft. There were Kluzak and Bellows. Boston had the first pick. We had the second pick. So I called Harry and I said, Harry, uh, I'll give you a couple players to let me go pick first. And he said, well, Boston, we've never had the first pick. We want to pick first. If we make a deal, we're still going to pick first. You pick second, but we'll we'll let the player go that you want. I said, okay. So they might have still liked Luzak, but I had a good fortune of playing with Barry McKenzie, who was Kluzak's coach in Notre Dame, Saskatchewan, in uh, junior there. Mm-hmm. And and Kluzak, let me tell you, was a terrific player. He was, and he's a big defenseman, and and he would he'd have been a terrific player too. But we wanted a, a power forward, and and I liked Kluzak a lot. We liked him, but I called Barry and I said, Barry, what do you, what can you tell me about Kluzak? Oh, he was a terrific player, skilled. He's Louis. I just, I just got some concerns. He seems to get hurt a lot, and it stays a long time. And that was enough for me. So I said, you know, I'm not going to take a chance on a guy who's not as durable. Like Bud Grant says, you can be a good player, but you got to be able to stay away from injuries and be able to play. So I gave him Brad Palmer, who was sort of flaming out for us. And uh, and I, I think it was uh, David Hodge, Kenny's son. Sounds right, yep. And, and I... Then I said, okay, we'll give you these two, and uh, we take Bellows. So Harry agreed. They took Kluzak. We took Bellows. Kluzak, you know, started out, he was going to be a good, really good player. But when you know it, I think it was maybe three years in, two years in, he got an injury, career-ending injury. Knees, right? He had terrible yeah. knees or something. Yeah. 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 Um, the Bobby Smith trade obviously was not ideal because he demanded a trade. 
Well, we we're happy with what we got back. That's what I was going to ask, because that's got to be the toughest trade for a GM to make when his hand is forced. Yeah, but, uh, uh, you know, I didn't have to make it until I got something that we really wanted. And we ended up with Keith Acton, who played really well for us. Mm -hmm. Mark Napier, uh, a second round pick that became Hodge and something else. But as I said, you got to you got to. You got to make the most out of what he wanted. The other one we made that was really good. It was a tremendous trade. Only we didn't capitalize on it because I, <laughs> I, I had the chance to pick other guys and and not the Brian Lawton wasn't a good player. You know Brian played eight years, ten years, but right. I could have picked either Lafontaine or Iserman. And but we were picking seventeenth, and we were at training camp, and they, we were playing a game. It was either Fargo or Fergus Falls. I was in the corner. Our number one pick was a defenseman that, you know, he's a good offensive defenseman, a junior. Came in the corner below me. I didn't like the way he went in the corner. I didn't like what I saw. Mm-hmm. I went right to the phone, and I, from there, <laughs> that place, and I called Baz Bastine Pittsburgh because I thought Pittsburgh was going to be a, uh, a club that wasn't going to be that good and had a chance maybe to be last. Mm-hmm. And I offered him our first pick. You know, which was 17th or 18th, plus this defenseman, and who, had, you know, now he's just out of junior. He's number one pick. He's big. He looks good, mm-hmm. and he took it, and so we got the first pick, and we had the first pick overall the next year, and, and we took a lot. What didn't you like that, that that you saw from the defenseman in that? I game? didn't like the way he went in the corner and hit somebody. Really, it was almost like he was a little shy. Okay, okay. Uh, back to the Smith trade for a second. How many um, offers or how how many teams did you consider ultimately before you took the uh, Montreal trade? Oh, I talked to everybody. Okay. I talked to everybody. I didn't get you come close elsewhere or no? No, no. I didn't like it all what we were getting at other places. Never even came close. So it, was that the, the toughest trade, though? To make just based on yeah, on the circumstances, yeah, I love him. he was my first pick overall. Yeah, he's a great player. Yeah, he's a great player. I didn't want to trade him. He was a terrific guy. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I had a strong affinity for him. I, I really liked the guy a lot, and La- I liked the way he played. Last one, the Plutt trade, eighty. That mm-hmm. was in June seventh, eighty-two. You sent uh, Nyrop Kristoff. And a second-round pick in 82 that became a guy named Dave, it looks like, Rufferson, to uh, Calgary for uh, Plett and a fourth-round pick in 82. Mm-hmm. That trade, because that was the one coming w- where you where you liked the team and the team w- was getting good, but Plett brought what? A goal scorer and toughness Yeah, at that time. Yeah, and we uh, – Cliff Fletcher had Bob Johnson coaching for him. And, uh, and I knew Bob – He's from Richfield, same place where Kristoff's from. Mm-hmm. And I knew Bob really liked Nyrob because Nyrob was a great player when he, you know, when he played. But then he, then he, he took time off. He retired from hockey. I talked him back into coming and gave him a draw, second round pick. And then I, you know, I liked the way he played, but it seemed to me like he had a lot more of the things on his mind than just playing and. And he used to question everything about the coaches' rules and, and everything. And and I just thought, you know, the atmosphere wasn't good and we really needed a guy like Platt. Yep. And uh, so I, I was able to make that trade. 
and I couldn't stand Plett before that. Not after yeah. that, but as a flame, he drove you absolutely. He, he was great, but he drove you crazy yeah. as a North Star fan. Yeah, he was terrific for us. I was very, very happy to get him. He made a big difference on our team for a long while. Hey, how tough what was it to trade guys from your standpoint, especially if you had had drafted them high? Because it seems like ego definitely, in this day and age at least with executives, Lou, plays a role. If you had drafted a guy ordinarily, now you, you, you did tell the story of a first-round pick that you dealt, but was it tough at times to trade guys if you had invested in the player himself for the most part? No, uh, and the reason why I told myself before I took the job, and it's funny because Derek Sanderson and I had dinner three nights ago at my restaurant, Tavern 23. He was in town speaking, and we were talking about trades and guys make the deal. He says, you know, he says, you have to remember, he said, and he told me, he said, I know you did. He felt that way. Never fall in love with your players. Yeah. As much as you like them, and I really had a special affinity for guys like Broughton and Cicerelli. But when push comes to shove, never fall in love with your players to the point where it's going to detract you from making a move if you have to make a move. You know? Yeah, and I, I, I used to tell myself, I can always be friends with them after their careers are over. Well, probably. Yeah. <laughs> some probably, probably. Yeah, didn't. Some, some right. probably didn't come yeah. back to say, "Louis, I still love you, despite the fact you traded me." Yeah, but you know, uh, you know what's funny? The funniest thing of all in all the trades I ever made, everything was Doug Rombo, mm-hmm. and I say that because Doug Rombo was making one hundred fifty thousand bucks a year, mm-hmm. and like I said, I was rooming with him a lot that year, and I called him and I said, "Doug, I try to trade you, I can't trade you. You make way too much money, so I'm going to buy you out." And he said, Louis, I won't take it. I said, yeah, you're going to take it, Doug. So, you know, let's work this out. I said, you're going to get two-thirds of your money over uh, two years. Start another career, you know, for you and your family. It would be really good. Yep. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, Doug, you are going to do that. He said, why do you see I'm going to do it when I'm not going to do it? I said, because if you don't do it, Doug, I'm going to move you every week to a different minor league team around North America. So your wife and kids can't come with you. I'm going to make it so miserable for you. You're going to hate me. And at the end of the day, you're going to give in. So why don't you just give in now and, and go in your way and, and, you know, you're near the end of your career and, 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 and get on with your life. So he took it. Now, this was 1978. Yep. In 2000, when I got cancer, uh, prostate cancer, and I was recovering down in Florida, this guy drove all the way across the state just to see me and say hello and spend some time with me. Really? Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, you're, you might be the last guy I ever thought would come over and see me. <laughs> that's incredible. So had had he, he gone on and had success elsewhere, and that's yeah, why? he went into the real estate business. Okay, so he probably well. got rich, and you were exactly well, right. He, no, he didn't get rich, but, he, you know, uh-huh. he did well enough, and now he was retired in Florida, and you know. But it worked out. So how tough is that to look a person, especially who you know well, in the oh, eye and say that? That's really tough. I mean, I it hurt me. It hurt me a lot because I really like Doug. and But, you know, here we were. He, he was the highest paid guy on our team and really couldn't play yep. anymore on our team. And no, and obviously no one was taking him. I tried to trade him everywhere along the league, eating part of the salary, the whole works. I couldn't get anything for him. So Interesting. All right, sir. Great stuff. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate okay, it. Nice okay. You, you take care. Talk to you next Thanks. week. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.